0: Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a 3-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter consumervc for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now, on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Geld, and on this show, we explore the world of venture capital and consumer facing businesses. I know it's been a weird year to say the least. But to help celebrate the holidays over the next few days and weeks, I'll be sharing some great moments with past guests who came on the show in 2020. Today, I'm gonna share some highlights from my conversation with Kate Boyle, the founder of Banjo Robinson. The reason why I wanted to start with Kate is because I just thought her story was really compelling and very deep and unique. It goes back to when she was a child and really it's just very full circle for her, starting her company Banjo Robinson. Banjo Robinson is a global trotting magical cat designed to delight your kids and encourage learning through stories and activities. Without further ado, here's Kate. Tell me a little bit about your background and story and how did you how you ended up founding Banjo Robinson?
1: How did I find my way to founding Banjo Robinson? I think look when I was when I was growing up, my dad would write me letters and he would leave them around the house for me to find. And I really loved them, you know, and you know, if my house was on fire, those are the first things I'd grab, you know. So they were um, meaningful, they didn't cost any money, they they have value, still do to this day. And it was actually a kind of an incidental way that I began to love reading and writing. I went on to work um, in film and script development. I moved to Los Angeles. I worked at William Morris, um, worked for a very talented screenwriter called Eitan Cohen um, on lots of studio movies. And, and when you do a studio movie with a massive budget, like a $200 million movie, it's as much about business and politics as it is, you know, art, uh, arguably more so. So it was a really nice hybrid experience of art, script, story structure, pacing, all that stuff, characters and contingent uh, consistency, but also business, money, uh, personalities, diplomacy, and all that stuff. So a really great experience that uh, meant that when I came back to the UK, um, I had been writing letters for my friend's children. They were having children while I was out in America. I found that the children's, I really was enjoying the short formats. So after uh, eight years of working on screenplays, uh, sort of four hundred odd drafts of one screenplay three year development process. It was really nice to be able to pen a letter and see um, you know make a child really happy and to receive you know the next day or a couple of days later a reply from the child and I think what what was um, interesting to uh, as a sort of a business concept was that you know children really don't necessarily love reading or writing or you might have a reluctant reader and writer who actually in at Christmas in December, loves writing to Father Christmas. And that's great, but it's seasonal. And what we do at Banjo-Robinson is he's a cat that travels all around the world and is constantly encouraging children to write back. And and, uh, 90% of the children that we uh, write to will write a reply to Banjo. So it's fun for the child, but it's educational as well. And so all of my background sort of fed into short formats, uh, letters, (laughs) um, but with story and and an, an element of sort of magic.
0: What makes you uniquely qualified and your superpowers uh, for starting this business?
1: It's definitely about passion. Look, you know, I live and breathe Banjo Robinson, and you know, I really couldn't imagine a person. I think founders always feel this way that they're incredibly invested, Uh, they are passionate about what they're doing, and they're uniquely empowered to execute. So, you know, as I say, this is a combination of my not just my interests, but my strengths and my background, um, living abroad, uh, understanding the American market, spending some time in Venice with a bunch of startups and uh, coming to London, entering Techstars, uh, learning from the people here. My experience in film was very much, as I said, about sort of watching the the people stuff, the, the diplomacy and the politics of getting a movie made as much as the story and the structure and definitely sitting in writer's rooms helps you uh, kind of learn the nuts and bolts of putting story together. Being the age I am, being surrounded by lots of children and godchildren, of course, it just means that my interests are completely aligned with the business interests and that making them happy means making customers happy. Um, it's a nice double bar incentive as well that the children love it, but the parents are also enjoying that it's educational. So it's, um, you know, it's it's got something about it that, is more than just a big win in terms of uh, more than just money or additional revenue from merchandise and licensing or film and TV rights and book publishing, all of which I have experience of, but it's also about some doing some good in the world. It's obviously, for me, very motivating. So I think it's a combination of tenacity, uh, passion, obsession, if you call it that, Curiosity. Um, I'm a generalist. I'm interested in everything, and I've started a business which is about everything: every country in the world, every person in the world, every animal in the world. Every banjo sort of talking about um, literacy, history, geography, language, empathy. Because he writes in first person, it's it's a real um, catch-all. So. It needed somebody who was as interested in the story as the business, as uh, being disruptive, as, you know, uh, somebody who's passionate about the market, the child, the parent, the territories. A short answer to that question, I think it's a combination of tenacity, curiosity, um, obsession with your business, um, obviously intelligence, being able to put a team together, being able to evidence that you have the right team, even without a lot of data, you can say, you know, this person has done this, has a track record. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, experience um, living abroad is always incredibly helpful, You. Saw sort of it puts you behind to start with and then uh, puts you ahead, I think, in the long term. So, you know, when I moved to America, I was behind all my peers. I wasn't familiar with the process of LA, of how deals were made, of, of how you get traction. I didn't know anybody. Um, I was, you know, I took a, a pay cut and a, and a job. Uh, demotion in order to get that visa and move over there and I uh, you know it was definitely tough but then what you learn there in addition to what you knew from your home country kind of compounds later on and you end up with sort of a yeah, kind of a, a superpower of understanding two different markets, two different demographics. You've had input and influence from 10x people, probably 100x in LA because it's such a networking city. Um, and and I think ultimately, like you've just got to be obsessed with your business. And and if you personify or if you really embody the both the product and the vision of the company, that's usually evident in a conversation. And I think you know it's very sweet of him, but Eamon, invested in us said that, you know, he knew straight away (laughs) that it was something he wants to invest in. And I think that testament to good investors really kind of looking for founder fit and prioritizing that in the early stage where there isn't data to back up their vision.
0: I think you touched on a lot of great points, tenacity, passion. And I think that with tenacity and passion comes grit. So how did you approach fundraising?
1: From From a business point of view, I think there were a couple of things that were disruptive and that helped us raise. So One is that there isn't, um, you know, a character out there. Um, Actually, there is one. It's a a Christmas character, which is magical and make-believe. So obviously there's Paw Patrol and Octonauts and there are characters on TV, but this is a character that, children form an emotional bond with. They become very, he's their friend, they write to him, they get a letter from him, they will call their grandmother in Australia and rave about the fact that a cat has written to them. He's, uh, it's a very emotional, uh, it's like almost like a confidant that they, that they write to. Um, and there isn't another children's brand that's uh, doing that. The other thing that we're doing is that the letters are reciprocal. So parents are able to edit the next letter that the child receives. So if the child asks Banjo a question, they write a letter To him saying, you know, do cats have birthday parties? The reply to that letter might be, yes, we do have birthday parties, but it's the parent who can add that on. So uh, the child writes their reply uh, to Banjo, posts it underneath the sofa before they go to bed. Overnight, it's magically collected by Banjo. And then two weeks later, a letter arrives from Argentina or Chile or the Great Wall of China or Finland um, with the content that we've written or that a children's writer through us has written. And The end of it is a PS message that the parent can edit saying, yes, we do have birthday parties and, you know, and I saw your grandmother in Australia and, you know, keep up the good work I heard on the cat vine. You're doing your piano practice is going really well. And so there's this really nice disruptive element where you've got personalized children's literature, but on a subscription basis. And I think that was one of the reasons that fundraising was quite easy for us, because obviously a subscription business model is the holy grail and you uh, you know we're not sitting on forty thousand units of stock we're not uh spending a year developing a book we have a children's writer pen a letter in an afternoon um each one is from a different country and then you know a couple days later we print it on a piece of a4 paper and it goes out to a child so it's i suppose there were two elements preempt some of your questions there there were two elements that helped us a lot that we were doing two different things that were new
0: How do you think about market expansion?
1: We're sending letters to children all over the world, but we are swallowing the cost of that. So when we're sort of, we're following the um, model of uh, Moo, Richard Moros. So I think in the early days, he did a deal with Flickr and they sent a a bunch of um, Moo business cards to the premium Flickr users, um, which was a fantastic, very smart partnership because it meant that... Not only did the right relevant people who were interested in photography get marketed to, but they then used Flickr in order to find the photos that they would end up putting on their business cards. So it was super clever, but it meant that they went international pretty much from day one and we're looking to do the same thing. So we're spending our marketing money in one territory, but we are... Um, looking at organic growth in other territories. So for example, we're doing, you know, US podcasts where we've been invited to do them, uh, but we're not spending money on that. <laughs> not just this one, but <laughs> family ones, you know, like um, parenting tax those kind of things we're international now day one um but we are focusing on marketing spend in one territory in order to kind of get some um more bang for our buck and and uh a better understanding of customers rather than diluting that understanding over the world so we are um, take it we're swallowing the cost of postage to different territories so at the moment everyone's getting a very good deal we're sending to the US for the same cost as a second class stamp to the UK and to Japan and uh, we have actually a, a new customer in the Middle East which is a whole other thing so they live in a country where there aren't post boxes and sort of yeah we're, we're out to the world and taking that cost on our, ourselves as a, as a company because we know how viral and how, how passionate children and parents are about the product. So, you know, we, we know and see that it speaks for itself. And we're finding that wherever we send letters, you know, we get shortly after one arrives, we get a few more orders in that, in that pocket, in that town. So we are spending our money in one territory and um, learning lessons from all.
0: I really, really like that growth strategy. What's one of your favorite books that has impacted you personally and one that has impacted you professionally?
1: Oh my goodness! This I wish I'd prepared. Okay, Doctor Zeus, both. (laughs) It really kind of sets the bar, particularly um, particularly the Lorax, which is a kind of very early comment on where society's going. There's a there's a you're not familiar with it. It's about this creature that sort of goes down the wrong path and uh, is greedy and capitalist. And not that those two things are necessarily the same, but he he is very much greedy and capitalist. He creates this thing called a thneed. And the idea is that it's a thing that you need, but it's a, a completely nonsense item. Nobody needs it. And he makes these at the expense of a forest. And it's a sort of one of the very early commentaries on, you know, excessive consumption, consumerism. And it's not for that that I l- loved it. It's the the poetry and the 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 humor and the the sort of um, wordplay is absolutely first class obviously and and it doesn't really get better than Dr Zeus so so I think but the combination of that with um, a message that was both early and impactful and beautifully made. And, you know, I love, I love fantastic words. Um, I love color and positivity and optimism and kind of colorful language, not in a, not in a swearing kind of way, but language that sings, you know, on the page. And um, so I think that is definitely kind of very high bar that we are (laughs) trying to um, get to with the quality of our writing and, and something that sort of, I'm passionate about in terms of um, providing uh, great literature and sharing great literature with children. I think that they deserve the best and Dr. Seuss is the best. And then professionally, obviously, I started out with the Lean Startup. So nothing very radical or disruptive there. Everybody reads it. I think, look, it really resonated. It wasn't just that it was recommended by lots of people that I respect or that it was the sort of the first one that everyone gets recommended to read. It's just that it resonated because it makes a lot of sense. It, uh it's, I think one of the things that they are discovering uh, works or one, one of the things that the there was a study I was reading recently about founders that are in their 30s and 40s and, and their success being correlated that the success of a founder correlates with their age so that they you know the older you are the the more experience, the more understandings the more insights probably the more contacts and the more um confidence as well the more successful and um I think that about you know coming to this in my late 30s and having seen the lessons of the lean startup kind of in action in businesses and and workplaces seeing where it was done and it worked seeing where it wasn't done and you know the consequences of that 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 made those lessons really resonate but and there's a ton of them traction and legacy which is the story of how the all blacks focus on culture as much as sort of skill and expertise so the, the the rugby players uh, of uh, New Zealand the All Blacks you know it's a it's a real lesson in teamwork and how um, there's the five dysfunctions of a team which is actually quite a good book on that subject as well but yeah Legacy is I think Legacy is the is the winner for me it's it, it kind of yeah I've just seen I've just seen the thing about the age was just to say that you know I think then when you have a bit of perspective you can sort of see the truth in these books and it becomes less sort of a less of an abstract oh yeah that makes sense and more of a kind of emotional oh fuck I really really remember when that wasn't done (laughs) and it didn't work out or you know there's a real sort of recognition of the of the um the lessons that are being taught in those books and i think that if you have a bit of experience under your belt you, you they really kind of um Ring true, and I think legacy for me—the lean startup, Doctor zeus and my. Those are my three.
0: I love it. I love it. Those are all great. I also loved how you're able to work in some rugby there. I'm a huge fan. You've given such wonderful insights. But if you had to give one piece of advice to consumer companies or those looking to fundraise that have a venture backable business, what would it be?
1: For fundraising, my advice would be to do your research to really work out who is worth spending time with and on to look at the the uh, different companies and to obviously look these meetings you'll do so many meetings and you will invest so much time away from the running of your business Uh, there's absolutely it's it's sort of madness to do that with a company that you haven't done your research on and that just isn't a fit you know from the get-go so it sounds very very obvious but even with inbound interest as well. Um, just uh, just focus on the ones that are, that make sense, you know, not just from a money perspective, but from a kind of common ground, uh, common vision, common areas of interest, common grounds of, uh, common areas of impact, potential impact. Um, do your research, keep absolutely every touch point in an Excel document so that you can understand where you are are at with all those meetings recommend face-to-face meetings where at all possible i think that um it's not going to affect the amount you raise or the valuation or probably the decision of the the partner at the vc fund but it definitely gives you your best uh shot of connecting with somebody so uh where you can do in-person meetings and i think you know vice versa for the investor as well it's uh, you're getting a better read of the of the character of the person
0: And there you have it. It was so fun speaking with Kate back in January. If you'd like to check out her full episode, it's episode number 24. I highly recommend it. Thanks again, Kate, for your time. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app, as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question, you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.